0: Welcome to the TriStar Church Podcast. We're so glad that you have tuned in today. My name is Matt Grimes, lead pastor of TriStar Church, and I want to encourage you to like and follow us on social media, as well as subscribe to our podcast. You'll find weekly sermons, midweek deep dives, and more right here every single week. I pray that you're challenged and encouraged as you listen, not just to the words that are spoken, but to the Holy Spirit who is speaking to you through this resource. Now let's dive in. you have not been with us for a while, or if today is your first time, let us say welcome. We're glad that you are here, that you're our guest this morning. Uh, We are taking a break uh, from our Genesis series. We've been preaching through the entire book of Genesis this year. Uh, Started in January. We have made it halfway through. We'll wrap up by the end of the year. But this summer, we want to take a break. Jump over to the New Testament. We're in 1 Timothy, and we're in a series called Blueprint as we look at this letter uh, that was written by Paul to Timothy. Timothy uh, has been sent to Ephesus, um, and he is serving as a temporary pastor here at the church at Ephesus to deal with some of the issues and challenges that are happening uh, here at this church. He's representing Paul, and this letter has been sent by Paul to Timothy to explain to him uh, how to kind of address what's happening there, to give him encouragement, uh, to support him in what is happening. Uh, and so the first week we saw uh, some of the issues that were rising there with false doctrine and teaching and how Paul encouraged Timothy that you've got to stand and you've got to confront that. You can't let this uh, continue. Last week, he moved into the importance of prayer and how the church is built on prayer. And we took time together to pray together at the end uh, of our service. And he talked about uh, uh, some of the issues and challenges that were there uh, between the roles of women and men and leadership in the church and, and specifically what was happening there in uh, Ephesus. I encourage you, go back, listen to those uh, sermons. If you've not done so, you can do that uh, on our media tab on our website. You can listen to uh, both of those sermons uh, because they build to where we are today today. Uh, Paul is going to continue today in chapter three of Timothy, uh, First Timothy. He's going to continue his dialogue of addressing some of the challenges that they're dealing with at Ephesus. And so I encourage you, if you've not yet done so, uh, if you're not in our database where we can communicate to you, text that word guest. Give us your information. uh, uh, It's to that number 865-240-0353. That allows us to communicate with you. One of the things we do is every Saturday, we send out the scripture for that Sunday. uh, So you have a chance to read it for yourself so you can come in prepared for what we're talking about. If you're not getting that text, go ahead and text that number and you'll get on that chain so that we can communicate that with you and you can be here with us. But what we're going to do is, instead of starting at the beginning of chapter 3, we're going to fast forward a little bit, and we're going to go to the end, because I think at the end here in verses 14 and 15, Paul is going to tell us the whole point of writing all of 1st Timothy. Uh, he's going to give us the point of it. If you've got a copy of Scripture, follow along. If not, it'll be on the screens behind me. 1st Timothy 14 through 15, Paul says this, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that... If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth Paul here tells us that his desire is to come to Timothy he wants to come in person he wants to have a conversation and talk about all these things with Timothy but he understands this is likely not going to happen there's too much going on uh, with Paul uh, with where he is currently that he does not think he'll be able to get and so he, get there so he writes a letter instead to Timothy um, just in case he cannot make it and what we see is an urgency on Paul's part to communicate this these important truths to, to Timothy. And I think a lot of times we find ourselves in situations like this where Paul is, where there are situations we need to deal with in our life. There are situations we need to speak to or talk about, uh, hard conversations that we need to have with an individual, a family member, a co-worker, and how often do we procrastinate those conversations, right? We like to push those off because we don't like hard conversations. We don't like to do difficult things at times, but the reality is we can't delay those, co- those hard conversations. In fact, In fact, the sooner you have those conversations, the better the outcome will be. Have you ever noticed that? Almost every situation where we delay a hard conversation, it only makes the situation worse. Like our tension and our stress just continues to build and the situation just gets worse until finally something blows up and it's really terrible. And if we would have just stepped into it at the beginning, it would have worked out much better. And so Paul understands this and he sends this letter to Timothy. I want to come in person, but I can't. And you need to understand this. This is the purpose of the church. This is why you exist here in verse 15, that the church would understand how to conduct themselves so that you can fulfill God's purpose for you as his people. And what is that purpose? He's going to tell us. Actually, the word church that we use so often was actually not a religious word in the, in the, the Greek language. Uh, it was not a religious word. It was used to describe a group of people who had been called together for a specific purpose. So the word church was used for any group that was called together for a specific purpose. Purpose. They were called a church, and it's kind of just translated itself over onto uh, the, the Christian gathering. But we are the same. We are a group of people. We've been called together for a purpose, and we must not forget that. We cannot forget that we have a purpose given to us by God as His church. And this is our purpose. It has always been, and it always will be, to be a representation of God here on earth. That is the purpose of the church, that's why we exist. We don't exist for programs. We don't exist for events. We don't exist for our own name and fame and glory. We exist to represent God here on earth in the place that he has put us. And it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. If you remember all the way back in January, why were Adam and Eve placed on the earth? To be God's representation, to represent him, to subdue the earth and to represent him well. And now thousands of years later, even through the sin, even through the fall, we are still are called to be God's representation, even though we're broken and we're sinful. God has called us to be an imperfect picture of the perfectly loving and faithful God. I love that you were not called to perfectly represent Jesus. You're sinful, I'm sinful. I'm gonna blow it. Don't believe me, just come to my house and interact with me and my wife and my child like I blow it on a daily basis, but God has called me to imperfectly represent the perfect, loving, and faithful father to my daughter and to my neighbors. And to some of my co workers, right? Not going to name who. Just joking. I work on staff at a church with a bunch of people, so you would think they all, never mind. We'll, we'll move on, right? To imperfectly represent Jesus to the world around us. But let me re- encourage you with this the church will never represent Jesus with weak, and misguided, self-centered leaders. And that is what was happening in Ephesus. When I was in high school, I grew up in uh, South Alabama, if you don't know me, uh, way out uh, about 30 minutes from any kind of civilization uh, on a farm. Uh, I took my wife there for the first time when uh, we started dating before we got engaged. And I remember turning off the interstate and she asked how much longer. And I said about two and a half hours. And she got the biggest like deer in headlights, two and a half hours on these roads. Yes, ma'am. It's going to be a while. Just sit back, right? It is the middle of nowhere. I'll never forget being in about 11th grade, my parents decided to go visit uh, some family and, and I had the opportunity to stay at home by myself every teenager's dream come true, right? And what is the one thing my parents told me I could not do? What do you think? Have anybody over. You're not allowed to have anyone in our house. Do not let anyone come through those front doors. Had to repeat it five times before they left. They didn't even get out of the driveway before I started calling people, right? Hey, my parents are out of town. You want to come over? And everybody loved coming to our house because it was farm and woods, and we had, you know, you can just, you know, go crazy and do all kinds of stuff out there. So everybody starts showing up at my house. And what was five people turns into 10, turns into 15. Before you know it, there's like 30 teenagers running amok on my parents' property. Um, We're all rednecks, everybody's got four wheel drive pickup trucks, right? And they're out in the field behind my parents' house just doing donuts in the mud, right? Um, And then all of a sudden, without me knowing, somebody crashes through the fence without realizing that there are cows in that field, even though they couldn't see them. There were cows in that field, Uh, but they didn't tell me this. And uh, they just came back to the house and just didn't say anything. And then all of a sudden, my dad's cows get out. They're roaming throughout the area. Uh, And next thing uh, that I didn't realize and, and know, but one of those cows got to our neighbor's house and fell in their swimming pool. And they realized pretty quickly whose cows they are. They didn't call my house. They called my dad who was only about 30 minutes away and decides to come back home to see what has happened and why the cows are out and why one of his cows is in a swimming pool, right? Um, And uh, they show up and open the door to 30 kids in his house, mud all over everybody's trucks, the field in the back tore up a hole in the fence and one of his cows in the swimming pool. It was a mess and I was in trouble, y'all. This is where the church in Ephesus was. It was a mess. It was chaos. And somebody had to try to fix it. There was heretical teaching happening everywhere. There was self-centered, narcissistic leadership in the church who was only concerned about power and authority and control and not about Jesus and the gospel and what they had been called to. And Paul understood this, that if you want to correct a problem, you first have to go to the top. You want, to, you want to correct a problem in the church, look at the leadership. You want to correct a problem in your family, look at the parents, right? It's, that's the dynamic that works everywhere. If my dad would have showed up at our house and just started yelling at kids who were at, at our house, that wouldn't solve the problem. Who was the problem? Me, the one who invited them all. It wasn't the cow's fault. Like you, you can't yell at the cow for being in the pool. You you can't yell at the people who are at my house. You yell at me because I'm the problem. Hey, me, right? Taylor Swift, I'm the problem. It's me, right? Like, it's it's me. And that's the problem in Ephesus. The leadership was the problem. And so Paul goes straight to the source and he's gonna tackle leadership within the church and he's gonna give us kind of a framework for what leadership should look like. He's gonna answer two main questions. One, what does leadership within the church do? And second, what should leadership inside the church look like? And he's going to kind of give us two roles of leadership in the church. He's not going to talk about exactly how you, you flesh those out. He's not going to give us advice on it, how to structure it all. Because for Paul, there's flexibility in that. What he's concerned about is the character of the leaders. So let's jump in. First Timothy three one. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So right off the bat, Paul tells us. The first role of leadership within the church is that of an overseer. In some of your uh, copies of scripture, you may see the word bishop. This is where the idea of bishop comes from, but it's just a word that's translated that means overwatcher, and we get our word overseer from that. An overseer is simply someone who looks closely or intently over. Another, they are overseers within the church are charged to look over the spiritual well-being of the local church. These are individuals with higher levels of authority and responsibility within the church. Now in Acts twenty seventeen, we see that there are more than just one bishop or overseer in a specific church in a city. There could be many. Uh, we also get our word for elder, From this same uh, word, bishop, as well, we also get our word, pastor, as well from this, uh, someone who shepherds. And so you can can interchange the word overseer, bishop, pastor, elder, all of those are the same. So this is kind of like the highest level of leadership within the church is an overseer. They are an elder or a pastor who is in charge with the oversight of a local body of believers. And what Paul says is that, He's not saying, hey, this is something everybody should run out and seek. Everybody should seek to be a pastor because it's good. That's not what he's saying. What he's really saying is this, is that being an overseer is a good, noble, honorable work. And so, Timothy, you need to look for good, noble, honorable men in that position because it's not easy Don't believe me, just go talk to some pastors. It's hard work. It is exhausting. More often than not, I come home and I put my head on my pillow, sometimes wondering why did I sign up for this? Because it can be grueling at times. It is a a good work, according to Paul, but it is hard work. And men who are not honorable, men who are not good, men who are not noble are not going to last in this role. They're going to burn out. They're going to fizzle. And Paul says there is nothing more worthy that someone could devote themselves to than caring for and shepherding the people of God. But if there's anything we have learned about the people of God over the history from Genesis to Revelation is that God's people are fickle people and they don't like to follow well. And they're stubborn and they can be hard to lead. They can be difficult to shepherd. Ministry is not a lazy man's job. It is a difficult labor of love. See, in the secular world, the higher up you go, the more important you are. The more honored you are. The bigger office you get, the bigger expense account you get, the more toys that you have, the higher paying your job is, the more respect, the more honor is thrown onto you. If you're the the CEO of the company, when you walk in the room, everybody's eyes turn on you. You are the most esteemed, honorable person there. The spotlight is on you. Favor is shown. But spiritual leadership in the church is not about titles. It's not about honor. It's not about glory. It is about hard work. The the word here in verse one for work is actually task. It's translated as labor. It's like when a woman goes into labor, it is a good work, but it is labor. It is hard. It is difficult. It is challenging. And not only are God's people challenging to lead, not only are they notoriously hard to lead, but Jesus makes it even harder in Mark chapter 9, verse 35, when he tells us what an overseer should do. He says, And he sat down with the 12, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last. Of all and a servant of all. Jesus said, Hey, listen, if anyone wants to be a leader, if any of you wants to be first in the kingdom of God, you want to be a leader, you think it's all about titles, you think it's all about glory, you think it's all about people bowing down to you, listen to me. You got to be last. You got to become a slave to all. Leadership in the church is an invitation to come and to die to oneself in order to serve others. If you wanna be an overseer, if you wanna be an elder, you wanna be a pastor, it's an even higher calling. But unfortunately in the church in America, leadership in the church has become a mirror of leadership in the corporate world. Where positions of leadership are all about oneself and the honor and the glory that one can bring to themself. And the work of the gospel is never about you. The work of the gospel has always, be, has always been about Jesus. But for some people, especially in Ephesus at this time, and it's still true today, the work of the gospel has become a platform for people to build their own fame, their own brand and their own recognition. People use leadership within the church as a way to bring glory to themselves, to bring honor to themselves, to bring attention to themselves. And that is not what Jesus has told us we're to do. When leadership in the church becomes about the leader, the church becomes a servant to the leader instead of the leader being the one who serves the church. And Jesus reminds us that the gospel will always be an altar to sacrifice oneself on, not a platform to build your own kingdom. The gospel is an invitation to come and to lay your life down on it as a sacrifice for what the Lord wants. It is not a platform for you to build your own kingdom for your own glory, for your own recognition, or for your own brand. So what does a godly leader do They sacrifice themselves to faithfully yet imperfectly serve the people God has entrusted them with. And if you find yourself in a church where leadership is about being served rather than serving, run as fast as you can because that is not what Jesus has called us to. Leadership is called to faithfully and imperfectly serve the people God has entrusted them with. And this was in stark contrast to what was happening in Ephesus. In the temple of Diana, it was all about using your own power, using violence to usurp authority and to grab control for yourself. That's what was happening in Ephesus and it was bleeding into the church. And when Paul says, hey, listen, you're to sacrifice yourself. You're a servant to all. This was in stark contrast to what was happening in the world around them in Ephesus. And what if the people of God began to live that same way today? Imagine the picture it would give our world of who our Savior is. Now that Paul has taught them what leadership in the church should do, he's going to turn his attention to what leadership in the church should look like. And what he's going to do is give us a list of some qualifications. If you've been around the church for a while, you know that verses two through seven here in chapter three um, are often used as you're evaluating pastors, you're evaluating elder candidates um, to determine, are they a good fit? And so let's look and see what Paul says uh, leadership in the church should look like. Verse two, therefore, He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. God has a specific, quali- he's got specific qualifications for leaders in the church. They're not to be chosen at random. They're not appointed because they're great volunteers. Leaders are not placed in the church because they give a lot of money to the church or because they have natural talents or abilities. Going to seminary and school doesn't make you a great leader. Being a great communicator does not make you a great leader within the church. What qualifies someone for spiritual leadership is, is godly character Paul says. And so he's going to give us some indicators for us to look like, to look at that would identify someone who has godly character, but I want to be, I want us to be careful here. Cuz we love lists, right? We love lists. When we go to scripture and we find a list, we go, "Oh boy, this is good." Right? Yep, yep, check. I meet that. Check. I meet that. Oh, that's not me, right? We like to do that with lists in scripture. Can I, I just want to challenge you, and I'm going to rock some of your worlds here for a moment. If that's how you approach lists in Scripture, you're reading it wrong. Almost 100% of the time in Scripture, lists are never exhaustive. They're meant to give us a picture. You've got to look at what is the bigger picture that list is trying to communicate. Like when I say, you need to find a Tennessee fan, right? Or let's do this. You need to find an Alabama fan. What do Alabama fans look like? Well, usually they're married to their sister and they're missing teeth. Like, I'm just, I'm just kidding. That's not all. Sorry, Brendan, I had to pick on my neighbor there. Like, you, you, you give ideas, but that, it's not everybody. You're giving some descriptions, indicators. That's what lists do in scripture. It's giving you an idea, an indication of what these people are like. And that's what Paul is going to do, he's gonna uh, he's going to give us some things. They're still flawed. They're still sinful people. But what does he say? Let's look at each of these things that Paul gives us um, for qualities we look for in an overseer in the church. One, blameless. This word just means there's nothing that you can take hold of. Now, this does not mean that they're without sin. That would be Jesus. And there's only one of him and all of us are sinful. But what this means is that there's nothing actively going on in their life that they're unrepentant of that you could grab hold of, right? You don't want a pastor who is leading a church or an elder who is a part of leadership in the church who's actively engaged in sexual immorality. It's gonna bring shame to the church when that comes to light. And so you want them to be blameless. He goes on, a husband of one wife. Now, the idea here is that this is not someone, this is someone who has got their, their, their sexuality, has got their urges in control. They're devoted to a wife. They're not out here running on every whim and sexual urge that they have. They're not prone to give in to ungodly sexual desires. Temperate, someone who's not given to extremes. They are reliable. They are trustworthy. You don't have to worry about these huge swings and emotions, desires. They're sober-minded. They can think with clarity of good behavior. They're hospitable. That means they're welcoming to others. They engage with others. That doesn't mean they always have people in their house. They gotta give them a break sometimes, right? They can teach. They're not given to wine. The idea here is that they're not addicted to wine or, uh, or alcoholic drinks. Now this verse <clears throat> does not mean that leadership in the church cannot uh, drink alcohol. That is not what is being said here. It says that they're not given to it. There's likely something going on in Ephesus with alcohol. I don't know what it is. We don't fully know what's going on. But the reason I I think there is something going on with, with drunkenness within the church is because not only does Paul mentioned it in First Timothy in his letter, but in, Ephes- or in Ephesus, in Ephesians, yet another letter written to the church at Ephesus, he addresses the issue of drunkenness again in Ephesians five eighteen and says, "And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit." <clears throat> the word here is "given," which is our word "addicted." which is an idea that you're addicted to alcohol, you're, you, you, you're a slave to it. And why does he warn us of this? The word here is a broader term used to talk about a wasted or unproductive life. Because of their drunkenness, they weren't living out Ephesians five sixteen, which says to make the, best use of time because the days are evil. Rather, they were slave to alcohol. They were slave to intoxicating drinks, which led them to make unwise decisions and unwise choices that caused them not to make the most of every opportunity to share the gospel with other people, which is what we're called to do. Someone who is not given to drunkenness, they're not violent. They're not greedy for money. <clears throat> John Calvin said, I repeat that the man who will not bear poverty patiently and willingly will inevitably become the victim of mean and sordid covetedness. If you can't be content, you'll never be satisfied. They're gentle. They follow Jesus's example. They're not quarrelsome. They don't get in meaningless conver- or fights and arguments. They're not covetous. No, they, they don't covet. The man who is never satisfied with anything always is demanding something more and something different. If we're consistently dissatisfied, we'll never be satisfied with Jesus. An overseer or a pastor should be one who rules his own house well, not perfectly but he can demonstrate that he leads his family well first because how can you lead the church if you're not leading your family? He's not a new believer. Be careful that you don't take new believers and elevate them into overseer positions because their pride will will puff them up and lead them into dangerous outcomes. Now it's important when we read this list that Paul just gave us, This is not a rigid list that demands perfect adherence. You can go into any church and look at their pastors and look at their elders, and they'll fail at some of these. I'm not always satisfied. But what is this list pointing to? It's not exhaustive, it's indicative of the kind of person you should have in leadership in the church. An overseer in the church must be someone who is self-controlled, who seeks God and service to others over what is in their own best interest. That's what Paul's getting at. That's what this list is pointing at. Paul's gonna move on. He's gonna give us a second role within the church and that is uh, that of a deacon here in verse eight. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double tongue, not addicted to too much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Let so their wives likewise, What's the difference between an overseer and a deacon? Deacons are responsible for assisting the overseers by taking care of the day-to-day needs within the church. In Ephesus, this would have been feeding those who are less fortunate who who needed food. It would have been caring for the widows. It would have been taking care um, of uh, the church building if there was one distributing goods to their community around them. And their presence gives time for the overseers to do other things like praying for the church, fasting, focusing on teaching and shepherding the church. Overseers dealt with the spiritual needs of the church. Deacons deal with the physical needs of the church. They are the servants. In fact, the word deacon simply means servant. It's a Greek word that uh, can be translated as a waiter or an attendant. And this is the idea of deacons within the church. As you think about even in our own church here at Tristar, this is those who serve uh, in our kids' ministry, those who serve in our worship ministry, those who serve in all of our ministries are like deacons caring for the day to day ministry needs of our church. They handle so many of the details of the church, allowing elders to focus on shepherding and teaching the church. And these two roles work closely together. And again, if you look at the list of qualifications, they're not exhaustive. They're indicative of the kind of leader you look for. And they're very similar to the same uh, 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 list that he gives us for overseers within the church. And I think what Paul is getting at is this no matter if you're an overseer, no matter if you're a deacon, no matter if you're just a regular member of the church, we're all called to sacrifice ourselves, to sacrifice our desires, to sacrifice our own agendas for the sake of others. And can I tell you where the church gets in trouble? It's when we stop doing that. When we Because remember, the church isn't everybody. The church is comprised of individual believers. When the church gets in trouble, it's when we as individual believers stop serving others and go, the point is to serve me. When we stop serving others and we expect to be served, that is where the church gets off mission. So the band's gonna come back up. We're going to take some time and I would love for us to ask ourselves one simple question. Am I serving or am I being served? In fact, where you are, would you close your eyes and would you take a moment of self-reflection And would you ask yourself that question? Because all of us, whether we're an overseer, whether we're a deacon, whether we're just a member of the church, we're all called to serve like Jesus. And the church shines the brightest in our community when each of us chooses to serve rather than to be served. God, I pray right now over our church. I pray over the men and women who are here in this place. I pray for those of us who find ourselves here struggling with that question of, am I serving or am I being served? I pray right now that whatever we need to lay down, whatever we need to let go of, that is holding us back from serving like Jesus, would you help us to do that? Because we wanna be your church We wanna be a pillar of strength. We wanna be a buttress of truth and strength in our community, just like Paul told us in verse 14 that we're to be. But that doesn't happen if we're focused on ourselves. That doesn't happen if we're seeking our own glory, if we're expecting others to serve us and to take care of us and to meet our needs. That happens when we sacrifice ourselves on the altar of the gospel. We spend our lives to serve our brothers and sisters in the church, our neighbors outside the church, in our workplace, in our neighborhoods. That is where the church shines brightly, the gospel. So would you help us to do that? That we would be the kind of church that Paul describes here. I pray that our church would represent you well. In your name we pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you live in the greater Knoxville area, we would love for you to join us for a worship gathering. We meet every Sunday at 1030 a.m. For directions and more information, please visit www.tristarknox.org. Lastly, resources like this one are made possible by the financial support and generosity of people just like you. If you would like more information on supporting TriStar Church, please visit our website, or you can text the word GIVE to 865-240-0353 and follow the prompts. Your generosity and support will empower us to continue to partner with believers, equipping them to make disciples by living out the gospel in the places they live, work, and play. Grace and peace.